That chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the best sports bar in Navy Yard, located just across the street from Nationals Park. Also a great place to check out if you're headed to Audi Field. Make sure to check out their self-pour beer wall and unlimited TVs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Robles takes the lead, the 1-0. Thomas hits a long drive to left field. Way back it goes. This game's going to be tied. It is long gone. Up near the top of section 105 for Lane Thomas. Home run number 11, the Nationals 2 and the Marlins 2. No doubter off the bat of the Nationals' home run leader. Now Corbin's 0-1. Swinging a line drive, looped into center field. That's going to drop in front of Robles for a base hit, and it gets by him. Soler, though, is stopping at first. He was just jogging down the line. Robles recovers and fires it in. So it'll be an RBI single for Soler, scoring Amaya. It's 4-2 Miami. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, June 19th, 2023. Juneteenth, 2023. A happy Juneteenth to those who celebrate, along with MassInSports.com. Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. One day, the Nats will be good again. And when the Nats are good again, I hope that they pummel the Marlins. I hope that the Nats pound the Marlins into submission and show no mercy against the Marlins. And exact revenge for uh, all that uh, the Nats are going through right now. That day will come, but unfortunately, that day is not now. The Nats are owned by the Marlins right now. Sunday afternoon, a 4-2 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park to complete a three-game sweep. The Nats continue to really struggle here. They now have lost 14 of their last 18 games. The Nats are down to 27-43, and 43, worst record in the National League, and the record for the Nats against the Marlins in regular season games since the start of last season is 4-21. and 21. We want to let you know that the next installment of the podcast will feature something very special, a conversation with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Our own Tim Shovers had the chance to chat with Bob about Oscar Charleston, who essentially was Willie Mays before Willie Mays. The Nats could use Oscar Charleston or anyone against the Marlins. Uh, Mark, this really is something. I can only imagine how frustrated the Nats must be. But 4-21 in in any subset of games is hard to do, and yet it is in fact the case for the Nats against the Marlins since the start of last season. Frustrated, dumbfounded, you know, pick your adjective there for what they're experiencing right now. And I think what's so bizarre or unsettling about it is that it feels like almost every game is the exact same type of thing. They're not getting blown out, but they're not 
ahead, they're not taking it to them by any stretch. They don't score runs against them. The Miami pitching staff has really taken them apart, especially their bullpen has done an outstanding job against them. And it just feels like the Nationals don't do quite enough when they need to. They don't get that one more hit, that one more pitch, don't make that one more play in the field. And they've been doing that against everybody over the last few weeks, but it feels like especially against the Marlins, every one of these games, there's a moment that's there for the taking and they refuse to take it. And they try to shrug it off and say, well, so, you know, good team, good pitching staff, and you know, we'll get them tomorrow. But I mean, it's hard to think that they don't have it in their heads at this point. They can't beat this team. It doesn't matter what they do. They can't beat them. 4-15 and 15 against the Marlins last regular season, 0-6 now against the Marlins this regular season. And of course, it would be one thing if the Marlins were the Atlanta Braves or the Los Angeles Dodgers. You'd say to yourself, okay, this is one of the elite teams in baseball. The Marlins are not bad. I mean, we've joked about this, but the Marlins this season are fraudulent, okay? Good record, bad run differential. It's not like the Marlins were anything special last season. And yet, the Nats just cannot beat this team. It is one of the more bizarre things that we have seen. So a lot of things, of course, did not go the Nats' way in this series. One of the things that is jumping out to me, and I reference this a bit on the last installment of the podcast, but the Nats' offense right now, if you look at this stretch of 14 losses in 18 games, the Nats now have scored three runs or less in 10 of the 18 games. There have been some good offensive games. So, you know, I do want to say that, but Man, it feels like lately, more often than not, there just isn't a lot happening with the Nats lineup. Right. So like you said, there are the occasional games where it does come together, but not nearly often enough. No consistency there. And put it this way, who in the lineup right now feels like a threat at the plate? I'd say Lane Thomas definitely does. He's having a very good season. I think Joey Manessis in certain situations has been. He's been excellent with runners in scoring position, not hitting for power though. So yeah, you got a guy on second or man on third, you want Manessis up at the plate, but you're not counting on him to really come through and drive in runs in bunches. And then at times we've seen Jamer Candelario do it as well, although he was out of this game, a late scratch with a bone bruise on his thumb, and they're going to see how he is on Monday. So who knows if that's something that lingers. And then you look what else they have. Yeah, there are guys who from time to time come through for them, but nobody is consistently coming through for them. And it was really on display, I think, in this series. You saw how weak a lot of those are, how quick a lot of the at-bats are, how in key spots where you have a chance to do some damage, inevitably they're coming up short and reaching for pitches, not making solid contact. It really, I think, was striking this weekend more so than we've seen in the past. Maybe that's just because we're more tuned to it when they're playing the Marlins and you feel like this is a team they should hit better. But it really feels like a lot of those innings were kind of helpless. I mean, they were down 4-2 for a good part of this game. It never really felt like they were back in this thing, even though they were technically one swing away on several occasions. They just never got it. Yeah, I mean, with Candelario out and uh, with also like C.J. Abrams out, although, you know, he's not hitting right now and he's batting in the ninth spot lately, but yet K-Bert Ruiz is a cleanup batter on Sunday afternoon. I mean, K-Bert is not having a good offensive season, at least in terms of results. And, you know, he was your cleanup batter. Michael Chavis was your number six batter, okay? Like, you know, that's not how you draw it up. And then you have something like what we had with Victor Robles on the base paths in this game. So Victor in this game went uh, one for two with a single and a walk. He actually had a pretty impressive plate appearance at one point in this game. I want to give him credit for this. In uh, the Nats' two-run third, Robles, a one-out single to left field to conclude a nine-pitch plate appearance in which he fouled off 
four consecutive two-strike pitches. So that was a good piece of hitting by Robles. Bottom of the fifth, Victor drew a two-out walk and then got picked off at first base for the third out with Lane Thomas batting. And a throw to first. Look out. He's out. Robles is picked off by Lazardo. So he had him on the leg kick of the previous pitch going back to the bag as he delivered to the plate. That time he picks him off to end the inning. As you're struggling to score runs, your best batter is at the plate. You're on first base and you get picked off. And to anyone who watched this game on Masson, <laughs> Bob Carpenter could not hide his disgust when this happened. You know, and Bob, he's been doing play-by-play forever. He's, you know, a very good play-by-play man, like a lot of play-by-play people. Doesn't normally inject his opinions into things. Occasionally does, but certainly doesn't usually let his emotions come out. And you could tell, Bob was disgusted by what he saw. We all were when we saw that. A classic, a vintage Roblesian base paths blunder with him getting picked off like that. It can happen, and yet, of course, it did happen. And I think the part that adds to the frustration on it is that, as you pointed out earlier, he is doing a lot of other things much better than he used to. That first at-bat from him was a real good example of what he was doing in April. Gets to two strikes, that used to be automatic out for him. Two strikes, he's going to chase a slider in the dirt and do the at-bat. And instead, he fouls off four straight pitches and then found a good one to actually rip to left field. He hit that ball solid for a single. That was a great at-bat that then preceded the Lane Thomas home run. The walk, again, not chasing. So there is actual evidence of him making real improvement this year. But as always with Victor Robles, it's one step forward, one step back. And it's like the universe has to balance itself out and he just can't help himself. And that I think is the most frustrating part is that obviously they don't want to see him struggle in every part of his game. That would be terrible. But Just when you think he's got something figured out and you say, okay, we finally got through to him. He's no longer giving us poor at bats and chasing pitches with two strikes. He still comes back to that one thing that comes back to get him, whether it's on the bases or in the field. In this case, it was on the bases. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're deep enough into Victor's career to where this is who he is. I think we're past the point of like, maybe he grows out of this. I know numerically speaking, he's still relatively young. It's not like he's in his 30s or anything like that. But, you know, he's been in the majors since 2017. He made his major league debut in 2017. Like this probably is who he is. And of course, when you're struggling, something like this gets magnified. You know, if you're hitting, a guy getting picked off at first base with two outs isn't the end of the world. But when you're not really hitting and you're struggling and you're owned by the opposing team as the Nats are by the Marlins, something like that really does stand out. There were some offensive bright spots for the Nats on Sunday afternoon and in this series. Mark mentioned a couple of them. Lane Thomas and Joey Manessis. I mean, Lane Thomas is having a very nice season. He, over the three games in this series, ends up going four for 13 with two home runs, an RBI double, and another double. So for a team that struggles to produce extra base hits, every one of Lane Thomas's hits in this series was an extra base hit. He had two 400-foot-plus home runs in this series, including on Sunday afternoon, one for four with a two-run homer. He and the Nats two-run third, a one-out two-run homer to left field to tie the game at two, 427 feet per stat cast. You know, it wasn't that long ago that you really did wonder, are the Nats going to have anyone who gets to 20 home runs this season? I think it's pretty safe to say Lane Thomas is going to do that, unless he gets hurt, I guess. But he now has 11 home runs on this season, and he's slugging at 485. I mean, this guy's flirting with a 500 slugging percentage. That is terrific. Yeah, Davey threw him out as a, an all-star candidate in his post-game press conference. And as much as we talk about, well, 
oh, they're going to have to pick somebody. Maybe they won't be that worthy of it. I think there's a case there that he is playing in a way that is worthy of all-star consideration. This wouldn't just be a token selection. I think he is playing that well. If he can keep it up for another, what, three weeks or so before that decision is made on who makes the team, I think he's going to have a good case for it. So that's been nice to see. And as we've talked about all along, it's been nice to see him sustain success. He was great in May. We knew at the end of that, okay, last year was up and down throughout the season. Can he keep it going? Well, so far in June, he absolutely has. And I think that's the most encouraging sign of it. I'm curious your thought on this. I mean, he's still hitting leadoff and very productive from there. If he's the only guy, though, hitting for power with any consistency, do you think about moving him down, even if it's one spot or two, trying to get him up with runners on base more? I mean, he did hit a two-run homer in this case because Robles was on. I don't know. I think it's dangerous because you got a guy going well. You don't want to mess around with that. I'm not sure who the obvious leadoff candidate would be right now ahead of him. Who's getting on base enough that you say, yes, we want to do that. But that would be interesting to me because are they maximizing Lane Thomas's production? And to be fair, that's not on him. Like They should not be in that position where they have to do that, but that's where they are right now, where they need to take advantage of every time he hits the ball out of the yard and hope that it scores at least you know two, if not three runs. Yeah, I mean, the Nats have so few guys hitting that whatever you do with Lane Thomas is going to create a hole somewhere else. He has been so good in this number one spot. He has been especially good in the first innings of games. I mean, he's been almost like automatic, it feels like, as the first Nats batter game in, game out in the top of the first or the bottom of the first. I mean, I suppose you could put him in the two spot, which is where most teams put their best batters. And in terms of like higher on-base percentage guys on the Nats, you know, it's funny Dominic Smith actually has a pretty good on-base percentage now. I don't think anyone is clamoring for Dom to be in that number one spot. But like, this is what you're dealing with. The best OBP guys on the Nats are, you know, Lane Thomas, Joey Manessis, Dom Smith. Like, that's really what you're looking at here. And uh, yeah, this is the way it is with this lineup. So I, I almost am like, keep them in the one spot and just get them as many plate appearances as possible. He's having a really good season. Just have that guy bat as much as anyone on your team. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that ultimately makes the most sense for it. But the other name, Victor Robles has, he doesn't have enough at-bats to qualify. He actually still has a really high on-base percentage. Now, we've seen them toy with that in the past, and it usually has not gone well. And my guess, or not even a guess, this is a very strong understanding of the way that they are operating right now. Until Victor Robles shows this for months in succession, they're not going to move him out of the bottom of the lineup. They do not want to do anything that plays with his mind and gets him thinking any other way than he is right now. You know, one of the real issues for the Nats, and they as a team aren't bad in on-base percentage, but a lot of that is because of singles. The Nats don't draw walks. They are not good at all at drawing walks. And obviously, traditionally, what you want in that number one spot is someone who is adept at drawing the walk. The Nats, as we're taping this installment of the podcast, are 29th out of 30 major league teams in walks on the season, 181. I mean, you look at what happened on Sunday afternoon. The Nats in this game, a mere one walk the entire game. This is a problem that like nobody drew. I mean, even Lane Thomas, who's having a good season, he's not like a big walks guy. I don't know. It's, it's like they're uh, immune to drawing the walk this season, but that's just not happening, them drawing walks. No. And the flip side of that is that they don't strike out a ton either. It shows you how much they put the bat on the ball. But I was saying earlier how many quick at-bats they have. They are not making starting pitchers work. You look at their pitch counts, 
opposing starters are getting through the third and they're still around 40. They get through the sixth and they're maybe in the 80s. They are not knocking these guys out early because they do not work the count. And that ultimately leads to a lack of walks as well. So you've got to be able to be selective, pick the right pitch to hit and understand what they need to be good at. And I think the Marlins actually were pretty good at that in this series, particularly against Corbin. A pitch that you swing at that you don't really know you're going to make good contact on, foul it off. I don't know if they have anybody who's really good at that. Maybe Garcia can do that at times. Extend the at-bat. Wait to get that good pitch. That's what Robles did so well in his first at-bat, but I don't know that consistently he does that. Make the pitcher work. They don't do that. If they put the bat on the ball, they put it in play, and very often it's a weak ground ball or a pop-up. Yeah, a lot of first pitch singles, a lot of second pitch singles for the Nats this season. We've seen a good bit of that. Joey Manessis, we mentioned him. So Manessis over the three games in this series, four for 11 with a double, two RBI singles, another single, and an RBI sack fly. Manessis in this loss on Sunday afternoon, two for four with a double and a single. It was good to see him get an extra base hit, bottom of the first, a two-out double off the right center field wall on an 0-2 pitch, and then bottom of the sixth, a two-out full count single through the left side of the infield despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. I've joked about this, but here we are again. Joey Manessis at 300, 300, 300 with the slash line. The batting average is back to 300. The on-base percentage is 340, and the slugging is 389. We are waiting on the Joey Manessis power to come. Do you think it's going to come? I mean, we saw it last season. We know this guy is capable of it, but boy, we're approaching the midway point of the season and he still has just the two home runs. There just hasn't been much power from Joey Manessis. Right. I don't think he's getting the pitches to really drive like that. I think teams have figured him out and that's understandable that that would be the case now that there's a much larger sample of his at-bats. He gets a lot of off-speed stuff. He's facing a lot of change-ups. They try to get him to reach at times or jam him inside. Now, to his credit, he's fighting them off. He has become very adept at the base hit to right field, which, you know, that's fine, especially with a runner in scoring position. That'll get the job done. He may only be getting one really good pitch a night to take a whack at, and unfortunately, he's not doing enough with it. So, I don't know. I don't think he's going to be this bad. I don't think he's going to end the season with like six home runs. I'd like to believe that's not going to be the case, but I don't see him all of a sudden going on a tear. The weather has warmed up, so it's not really that. There have not been a lot of drives to the warning track. That one, the double today was well struck into right center field and didn't quite get there. But no, I think we may have to just resign ourselves to this idea that he may be a 300 hitter and a ideally 400 slugging percentage. And again, let's remember where he came from, who he was. If I told you on August 1st of last year that Joey Manessis would become a regular 300 hitter in the big leagues for the Nationals, you say, whoa, who? What? That sounds fantastic. So we got spoiled last year from it. You wanted to believe that that would still be there. Maybe someday it does come back, but I don't see a lot of signs to suggest it's going to be that. On the flip side, he is not a bust. Everybody was worried. Could that have just been a complete flash in the pan? He's not even really a big leaguer. No, he is establishing himself as a legitimate big league hitter, even a good big league hitter, just not one who hits for power. Yeah. You know, we saw him last season slug over 500. And so, you know, the comp that was made was like, okay, maybe he's like a Michael Morse guy. And Morse ended up having power over multiple seasons. At least right now, Manessa's not displaying much power this season. But no doubt. I mean, on, you know, the list of Nats who have been offensive problems this year, He's not high up on that list. Like there are a lot of other guys who you point at before you get to Joey Manessis. Are you looking for tickets to an upcoming event? 
DC might not have been on the Taylor Swift circuit, but still plenty of other events in the nation's capital, such as the Ed Sheeran concert in a few weeks in Landover. That's why you should download the GameTime app. Create an account and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. You get cheaper tickets and it helps the podcast a bit. Again, create an account and redeem the code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Terms apply. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Well, we all know what summer means. Uh, summer means baseball. Summer usually means more home runs in baseball, but uh, summer also means heat and humidity and your energy bills being rather high due to your air conditioning working extra innings. It is time to beat the heat with Window Nation's summer sale. Save thousands of dollars with an outstanding offer. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years. Plus, Window Nation will give you two free windows for every two windows that you buy. All you have to do is call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Increase the value of your home by up to $12,000. Hey, make your neighbors jealous. Who doesn't want to do that? Again, the Window Nation summer sale. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Two free windows for every two windows that you buy. And this goes for any style of window from Window Nation. 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Nat Chat is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Check out their selection of shorts and pants that come with the comfort of built-in liners. Bird Dogs make you look good. Bird Dog Stretch Khaki Shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. They fit way better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. Go to birddogs.com pool and enter promo code pool, P-O-O-L, for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. You won't want to take your Bird Dogs off, we promise you. And the one-two of the way. Swing and a fly ball. Shallow center. Wendell the shortstop out in calling. And he makes a one-handed grab. And the Marlins have done it again. They have swept a three-game series from the Nationals. And have won all six games between the two teams after winning 15 of 19 last year. So Patrick Corbin was the Nats starting pitcher for this 4-2 loss to the Marlins on Sunday afternoon. Four runs in six innings was the final line. Kind of an odd outing for Corbin. He gave up 11 hits, but all of the hits were singles. He issued two walks and a wild pitch. He recorded just three strikeouts. He threw 102 pitches, 63 strikes versus 39 balls. He wasn't good. He did, though, at least give the Nats some length, which you know that they very much need right now with the state of the bullpen. But how about this? He pitched for six innings. He did not have a single clean inning the entire outing. He allowed a run in the top of the second, a run in the top of the third, two runs in the top of the fourth. A lot of guys on base, a lot of hits give it up. We've seen that quite a bit with Corbin these last few seasons. I guess on the uh, Corbin curve, you know, we have seen much worse than this, but, you know, this wasn't good. Four runs in six innings. No, and let's extrapolate that out. Four runs in six innings is a six ERA, and 11 hits in six innings is a huge number. Now, yeah, all singles. So he never did give up that one hit that just blew the doors off and turned the game around. It was a lot of nickel and dime stuff and not a ton of hard contact. But I think what stood out to me is just the lack of swings and misses. 
the Marlins swung at 47 of his pitches. They whiffed only five times and only once on his slider. Now, if you remember Patrick Corbin from 2019, that's who he was. He was a swing and miss guy. And I get that he's not that anymore. And it's probably too much to believe that he's ever going to get that one back. But you got to have the ability on occasion to get a swing and miss, especially with your breaking ball. And, you know, he was throwing them in the zone. It's not like he was burying them all and, and you know, pitches that they weren't even going to take a whack at at all. They were swinging and they were making contact on those pitches. So, yeah, soft contact. But the problem is when you do that, you're now relying on your defense to make every single play. And there were a couple of moments in this game where the defense wasn't 100% crisp and clean that cost them. Sometimes you got to just be able to make a guy swing and miss. And he doesn't really have that in him right now. So while it may be some improvement from what we've seen the last few years, it's still a long way from being who he could still be as a guy who doesn't just give you a chance to win, but actually goes out and wins you some games. And that's what he's not doing. No, I thought it was funny, though, with this game. You really are starting to get the vibe from Davey of like with the bullpen, you know, he's just trying to hold on and survive here. And so with Corbin, it was like, we're paying you a lot of money. You're not very good today, but you're going to eat up some innings for us. You're going to at least give us some innings. And Corbin at least did do that. But yeah, it was not pretty. And, you know, it's funny with him because the strikeout rate has declined so precipitously that when people talk about, well, put Corbin in the bullpen, he's like the exact opposite of someone who you want in your bullpen. You want strikeout guys in your bullpen. You want guys in your bullpen who you can bring into games with runners on base, and those guys can generate swings and misses and you know put out fires. Corbin is the opposite of that. He pitches to contact. He's letting guys hit the ball all over the place. Maybe the balls get caught. Maybe they don't. But that is the antithesis of what you want, ideally, from a reliever. It's not like if you put him in the bullpen, all of a sudden, he'd get back to being some big-time strikeout guy, unless they think that his velocity would tick up or something. No, like this is kind of what it is. He's a back of the rotation guy who hopefully stays healthy and can eat up innings for you. And that's basically what you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, I think last year there was talk of that as a last ditch attempt to salvage something out of him. And he has been better. He has avoided the blow up starts. And so at the very least, he's pitching like a number five starter this year, which I suppose is, you know, good enough. But you would love even if it doesn't happen every five days, you'd still love every once in a while for him to go out there and show a glimpse of who he used to be and say, okay, wow, that was a really good start. He won them that game, not just, hey, he gave them a chance. And right now, giving them a chance is the best he can offer, which is tough. It's tough. Yeah. 2019 Patrick Corbin ain't coming back. Daddy went out to buy milk and daddy's not coming home. And I think we need to accept that. Uh, 15 starts now for Corbin this season. ERA of 489. The whip is at 158. Well, the Nats on Sunday afternoon only used two pitchers in the game. Patrick Corbin was the starter. And Corey Abbott, yes, that guy, Corey Abbott, he was the lone Nats reliever used in this game. Corey Abbott made his first appearance since the Nats on June 7th recalled him from AAA Rochester as the corresponding roster move to designating reliever Erasmo Ramirez for assignment. And Abbott actually did a pretty good job on Sunday afternoon. Three scoreless innings, two strikeouts versus one hit, which was a single. The Marlins had nothing but singles in this game. No walks from Corey Abbott. He threw 41 pitches, 28 strikes versus a mere 13 balls. So, you can't say that uh, he wasn't fresh. He clearly was fresh. And, uh, you know, all things considered, did a pretty nice job. Yeah. And saved everybody, uh, you know, from having to pitch. And maybe they'll be good now for the Cardinals series. Again, it felt like if the offense had just done anything 
and made this a little more interesting, you would have gone to Harvey and Finnegan those last couple of innings, but they couldn't do anything. So why are you going to burn them up? And so it didn't happen. So just let Abbott finish it out. You know, good on him. I can't imagine what that's like to sit around for 11 days and try to keep yourself fresh in some way. You'd see him throw in the bullpen somewhat. He, you know, he said he's tried to work on stuff and visualize as if he's pitching the hitters, but there's nothing that can replace actual game experience. You know, I think the interesting thing there is it's clear that they don't view him as a guy to be in a high leverage spot. And We've seen him both as a starter and occasionally as a reliever, and there's not a whole lot going on there to get excited about. But he has shown at times an ability to get through a couple of clean innings. The longer he stays in there, the worse it gets. Given the makeup of the bullpen right now, if you're really that desperate for somebody that you can call on to pitch two innings in the sixth and the seventh in what's a close game, we've seen them try Chad Cool. That doesn't work. We've seen them go out of their way not to use Thaddeus Ward in situations of consequence. We saw them try Rosmo Ramirez. That didn't work, and now he's gone. At this point, is there any harm in seeing how Corey Abbott would do in that spot? It can't be worse than what the others have done. What's the worst case scenario? He gives up some runs, you lose a game because of it, and you decide, okay, guess he's not the guy for that after all. The bar is very low here. At some point, if he's on your team, you might as well see what you got out of him give it a shot in some kind of situation of a little bit more moderate consequence and see how it goes. Well, I think with the way the bullpen is, you know, who is in your top five in terms of your, you know, BCS nationals relievers rankings, that changes on a day-to-day basis. And so, hey, if you have one good outing, like, okay, now we look at you and say, hey, maybe this guy can be something. I mean, you know, Mason Thompson was reeling has a few good outings and, you know, we're doing backflips over Mason Thompson being back because it's like, that's how it is right now. If you show us a little bit, we're going to grab onto that and just hope like heck that that means that there could be more good that's coming from you. You know, it's funny for all of the talk about reliever usage in this series, Hunter Harvey did not pitch at all in the series. Kyle Finnegan did not pitch at all in the series. Now, look, I don't know that either guy should have pitched in the series, but, you know, it's just funny how things work out. You had multiple appearances from Chad Cool, multiple appearances from Jordan Weems, zero appearances from, in theory, your top two relievers in Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan. So if nothing else, those guys should be fresh for this upcoming series against St. Louis. They should. It would be nice also if their teammates could supply them a lead and give Davey Martinez no reason to question whether he should be throwing them in the later innings instead of trying to decide, well, should I use them when we're down a run or down two runs or do I need to hang on to them? Because what if we're in the game tomorrow? Force the issue on the manager. Force him to use his best guys because that means you're actually winning. While we are talking pitching, a man who soon could be a member of the Nationals organization, Paul Skeens was pitching on Saturday night, the LSU flamethrower. He and LSU's 6-3 win over Tennessee in the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska on Saturday night. Another gem, two runs in seven and two-thirds innings, 12 strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, He gave up just five hits. He threw 123 pitches. The Paul Skeens hype refuses to stop, nor should the Paul Skeens hype be stopping. This guy continues to dominate. I mean, I think it's worth highlighting. This is kind of an obvious thing, but, you know, he's pitching well in the NCAA tournament in the College World Series. He's facing the best hitters in college baseball and is dominating. It's not like he's, you know, taking a step back or, you know, having some problems. Like, no, if you look at 
his uh, recent outings here. I mean, LSU had a 7-2 win over Tulane on June 2nd in the NCAA Regional. Two runs in a career-high nine innings, 12 strikeouts, no walks. It doesn't matter who he's facing. It doesn't matter where you are in the LSU season. The guy continues to thrive. It really is exciting to think about what he could be should the Nats take him. I guess a question, though, would be this, and I've seen this brought up. You know, is he an arm injury waiting to happen? Is he a Tommy John guy waiting to happen? I would presume the Nats are having their analytics people, their biomechanics people studying his delivery, his mechanics. Not that you can easily predict this stuff, but maybe to get a sense of, hey, is this guy an arm injury waiting to happen? Or maybe just maybe might he be someone who doesn't fall prey to injury the way so many pitchers have? they're going to look at everything they can. They will ultimately come draft time, I think, have access to some medical information from LSU. I think that is allowed. Colleges and high schools can can provide that. I know everybody in the organization is watching this guy very closely. I can tell you that players on the big league team, members of the big league coaching staff, they tuned in to watch that last night. Maybe not start to finish, but they were watching at least a good part of it, especially late in the game. I can also tell you there were some people in the organization holding their breath when he took the mound in the seventh and then again in the eighth as he got up to, I think it was 124 pitches perhaps before he was finally pulled. So they are keenly aware of that aspect of this and want to be careful, but they also see what we all see. This is a guy with electric stuff who is a big physical presence on the mound and who seems to have a lot of poise and who seems to pitch with a lot of confidence as well. And it's hard not to get excited. You know, it's funny, a lot of times going into the draft, teams are very careful about not talking about anybody specific. They don't want to tip their hand at anything. It's been pretty clear that the Nationals, a lot of people in the organization are not shy about talking about Paul Skeens. Like they know it. They know that there's a very good chance that they're going to get it to be able to draft him, and they're not really hiding that fact. So I think that in itself tells you a lot. Yeah, and I don't think there's any reason to play little games here. Like I think everyone realizes you have two, maybe three supreme studs who figure to go very high in this draft. LSU outfielder Dylan Cruz, Florida outfielder Wyatt Langford, and LSU starting pitcher Paul Skeens. And you're not really fooling anyone in trying to say, well, you know, we don't know about this guy. Like, no, like Paul Skeens is being talked about as maybe the best pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg. LSU lists him as being 6'6", 247 pounds. He is a transfer from Air Force. I don't know how many people know that. He played the 2021 and 2022 seasons for Air Force before transferring to LSU. And, you know, regardless of what anyone says, I can't imagine that if you're Mike Rizzo, if you're someone in the Nationals Baseball Operations Department, that you want to see LSU continue to play here, okay? Like, let's be honest. You want Skeens to do well, but it isn't in your best interest to see Paul Skeens continue to pitch. I mean, if you buy into this idea of a pitcher only has so many pitches in his pitching arm, what that number is, who the heck knows, but you don't want those pitches being executed at the collegiate level. You want those pitches being executed for you if, in fact, you take the guy. So I feel like there's kind of an odd dynamic here of like, you know, you enjoy watching Paul Skeens pitch. You're not rooting against him, but maybe you're rooting against his team. You know, if you're Mike Rizzo, like it doesn't do you any good for Paul Skeens to continue to have these 120 plus pitching outings for LSU when you may want him doing that for you. Yeah, I think there would have been a lot of people who would have been perfectly fine with LSU losing that game one nothing, something like that. And obviously that wasn't the case. And so he may get another chance to pitch before the College World Series is all said and done. But 
not that there's a whole lot of evaluation left to be made here. I don't think they're all of a sudden, their scouts are still saying, well, I really need to see how he does this or that. But I will say this, if he is pitching in, say, the championship round or semifinal round, something like that, I haven't looked at the schedule to see how that's going to map out. I do think there's some value in watching how he handles that kind of situation. Colleges are very different than the pros. And as much as you want to say, oh, hey, he's dominating Tennessee, therefore he's going to immediately dominate when he gets into professional baseball. No, professional hitters are much different. Strike zones are different. The pressure of facing big league hitters in big moments is very different. But the closest you're ever going to get to that would be the College World Series and especially an elimination game or a championship game kind of situation. So I would be curious to see, with the injury risks aside, how does he handle something like that? Does he thrive in the moment? Does he rise to another level in that moment? You know, we saw in that game the other night, he did fade there at the end. Now, yeah, his pitch count was up in the 120s, so it's understandable why that would be the case. But I could see people being interested in, okay, here it is. Everything's on the line. This is his World Series. We saw how Steven Strasburg did when he finally got the chance to pitch in the World Series. Let's see how Paul Skeens does, because that might give you a little glimpse into the competitiveness and the ability to pitch in the biggest moments and how that might translate at the professional level. Yeah, and I would hope, and I don't know how it works exactly with the MLB draft. I know that there is an MLB draft combine, but you know, a big part of the NFL draft and the NBA draft are the combines for those drafts. A, you can get some good medical intel on guys, but B, you can talk to guys. And, you know, a big thing with any high-level athlete, obviously, is going to be, well, you know, is this guy a knucklehead or is this guy someone who has his head on straight and is, you know, accountable and responsible and seems to be diligent? Because that would be something that would turn you off to skeins. If you find out that, no, this guy's a screwball and uh, we, we don't really trust this guy to take his craft seriously, that would be a problem. Now, there are zero indications that he is that way, but I would hope that the Nats in some way can have some kind of a sit down or, you know, get to know him as a person just from a standpoint of, you know, that you're not spending the number two overall pick on someone who's not going to live up to his end of the bargain in terms of, you know, work ethic, attitude, et cetera. Yeah, I'm sure they're doing whatever they are allowed to do in that regard. You hear Mike Rizzo say it all the time with the big moves like that, you're not just signing the player, you're signing the person. And I think that's valid. I do think they believe that. Now, you're not just going to go sign a good guy who is not you know, worthy of being that high of a pick based on his talent alone. But you want to make sure when you're committing yourself to someone in that kind of spot that you check off all the boxes and you understand the kind of person that he is. Everything that I've heard about him suggests that he is a very serious, very studious. The time at Air Force says a lot about him, the preparation, the work he puts in, the commitment. I don't think there's any real question about that. This seems like somebody whose head is squarely on his shoulders. I don't think they need to worry about any of that stuff. But yeah, they'll take whatever opportunities they are afforded to try to get to know him, talk to the people around him. It's not just him. It's talking to teammates, coaches, family members, whoever they can get their hands on and try to get a real sense of who this guy is. And while we're talking some college baseball, a salute to Virginia. Its season is over. A 4-3 loss to TCU in the College World Series on Sunday afternoon. This off a uh, 6-5 loss to Florida. So very good season for the Cavaliers, but uh, their season now is over. 
You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you on board. Email Tim Shover, see what we can do for you. That email address is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at our website, NatsChatPodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark. For the Nats Chat Podcast music, visit timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Before we get started, I just I, w- I would just want to wish all the uh, all the dads a happy Father's Day. Pops, I love you. Thank you for being my superhero. I uh, appreciate all you've done for me in my life. <laughs>